Everybody joining me on the podcast today is Mike Laval, Managing Editor of Last Word on College Football. Uh, Mike, thanks for taking some time out and um, being on the podcast today. Phil, it's always a pleasure to be on Football Report. Uh, thank you, thank you. Appreciate it, appreciate it. You know, <laughs> we are getting closer and closer to college football season. It is, you know, we're right, right at media day, so it feels like it's, it's just about here. You can almost taste it. Yeah, three weeks away from uh, all the media days. I think they're all happening, uh, for the exception of one, the same week this year. So, so it should be uh, should be good time starting July sixteenth, uh, I believe. Yeah, you know, your media days. I guess for some people, you know, do think that is the or say that is the kind of the unofficial kickoff of college football season, and that's going to be interesting. You know, and, and I wanted to bring on to talk coaches, but before we did that, about a week and a half ago, it seems like we're we're losing the legendary voices in college football. I think that's what makes college football different than any other sport, especially for me growing up as an Auburn fan, listening to Jim Fife on the radio. That was always – I look forward to that every Saturday. I would mute the TV and just listen to his call. So many other great voices in college football. We lost Keith Jackson early in the year, but losing Tennessee's legendary voice, John Ward, has some of the iconic quotes, uh, sayings from his broadcast, the, you know, football time in Tennessee and give him six. Just for someone that's, you know, followed the Tennessee program, just what is his legacy and what he means to the Tennessee fan base? Well, I'll be honest with you, uh, uh, Phil. You know, uh, two Wednesdays ago, uh, I cried myself to sleep. It's, it's, it's impossible to overstate the impact that John Ward had on the Tennessee program. You know, other than General Neyland, and Pat Summit, it would be hard to argue that anyone else had the impact on the entire athletic program uh, as John Ward. Uh, I think you hit it right on the head. We, we talk about college football, and what really separates college football from the professional aspects, uh, going back to the uh, the history of college football, is kind of the regional, uh, you know, the Southeastern Conference and the teams playing each other geographically, that, you know, and, and they go to the other conferences. Where, where teams play each other in their general geographic region. College football has always been that way. And that's why you have uh, the difference in schedules, uh, the difference in how hard it is to play in one area in the, uh, the country as opposed to another area. And you know, all that stuff changes. You know, we, we like to talk a lot about the SEC dominant and the Big Ten. But, you know, if you go back two decades, different conferences were, were stronger than they are now, and strong conferences now maybe may not have been – as strong back then, so it's much more of a regional sport. And so, when you talk about these uh, these radio guys, particularly for the Southern program, uh, they are so instrumental to the fan base. You talked about iconic calls. If you're a Tennessee guy or, or a Tennessee fan or Tennessee gal, and you go into a bar, uh, whether you're in San Antonio, uh, which is where I live now, or you're in Atlanta or somewhere else, and a group of ball fans get together, when a guy rushes for a touchdown, everyone in the bar counts down the same way. Five, four, three, two, one, give him six. Everybody in the bar. I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. And you know, other fan bases see that, and it's remarkable for Tennessee fans to be that way. I'll tell you, he was, most of all, he was a unifying factor of the fan base. It's unfortunate because I don't think the generation, uh, you know, Tennessee fans, maybe younger than 30, maybe younger than 35, uh, unfortunately, I don't know that they understand how important he was to the athletic program. Uh, you know, people my age and older didn't grow up with college football on 15, 20 different channels 
uh, TV every Saturday. When I was growing up, there was maybe two games on, you know, network TV. I mean, you really only had three channels. And so you may have seen one or two games a weekend or one or two games per Saturday. And so people my age and older grew up listening to John Ward, listening to Tennessee football, not necessarily watching it, but listening to Tennessee football. I remember as a young kid in, in the middle 80s, that's how old I am, uh, you know, I, I would wake up, uh, I, would, I would actually go to my high school football game and watch that on Friday night. I would get up, I would listen to the replay of my high school football game, my WHIN, 1010, Gallatin, at Nashville. I mean, it's, it's crystal clear in my head still to this day, uh, you know, thir- 35 years later. And then I would listen to the Big Orange Network on that same channel, and I would listen to John Moore uh, call Tennessee football games. And so when you look at a place like Tennessee, who's went through 10 years, a decade of dysfunction, who's went through 10 years of just mismanagement by senior people, the, the administration and athletic directors and, and poor coaching hires since they got out of Phil Fulmer, the, the reason why you still have 104,000 or 102,000 people uh, 102,000 people in the stands every weekend is because they grew up listening to John Ward. It, it's, it's, it's something that's ingrained in them, and he did that. He did that with his voice. He unified a fan base. Uh, you know, you talked about kind of the regionalism and the history. I, really, the only thing I can think that compares to it is when the Dodgers left Brooklyn for L.A., uh, and, you know, you, you had uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of kids who listened on the radio to the Dodgers, even though they were in L.A. Now, Tennessee fans to this day will still mute their TV and listen to the Big Orange Network uh, just because they grew up listening to it on the radio. And, and many of the stories are all the same. If you watch the memorial ceremony they had last Wednesday for, for Mr. Ward, uh, many, of the, many of the stories are the same. It, it's my story, too. Uh, a lot of these fans... Uh, grew up poor in Tennessee somewhere. And, and, you know, the one thing they had that connected them with the rest of the world was John Ward calling Tennessee football games. I like to say that every Tennessee fan has a Tennessee moment. You know, that moment when, when they became for life, that moment when they became a volunteer for life, what we call a VFL, when, when they became a, a VFL fan. Uh, and, and almost every single person, that Tennessee moment for them had to do with listening to a John Ward call on the radio. And his ability to unify the fan base is so important um, for for a blue blood program and to have a fan base like Tennessee had. I I know I'm partial, uh, but I'm telling you right now, I've covered a lot of college football. I've watched a lot of college football over four years. I'm telling you right now, the Tennessee fan base is different. Every fan base is unique. The Tennessee fan base is different in a special way. And that is due in no large part to John Ward. Uh, so, so it, like I said when I started, it would be impossible to overstate the impact that John Ward had uh, for Tennessee football. And you talk about that passion for Tennessee football and, you know, kind of transitioning, you know, the coaches in the SEC and the new coaches. And you got a handful of them, you know, really have a new class of SEC coaches. A lot of changeover at the head coaching spot in the SEC. One of the schools is Tennessee with Jeremy Pruitt. And to me, I, I like what Jeremy Pruitt's doing. I think he's going to be very successful at Tennessee. And it seems like to me the Tennessee fans are really flocking to him, I guess in a way I could say it, uh, excited about what he can bring to the program. Uh, certainly. He comes, with a, he, he comes with a track record of success. He's had success everywhere he's been. Uh, of course, that's all as assistant coach. Uh, so we'll see how he handles the reins as the head coach. First and foremost for Tennessee fans, he's a breath of fresh air. He's a no-nonsense, 
He's not a marketing guy. He has zero interest in winning the press conference. He is 100% focused on the field and with recruiting, and that's it. Those are the two things he's he is focused on. Uh, you, you know, we've had coaches in the past, of course, Lane Kiffin, Butch Jones, uh, who were uh, much more theatrical, much more marketing oriented. And, you know, no doubt about it, Lane Kiffin can coach football. He can call plays. He can recruit. No doubt about it, Butch Jones can recruit. But those guys. Uh, they had a trouble relating with the Tennessee fan base. You know, going back to John Ward, uh, you know, the reason why Tennessee fans or, or the Tennessee fan base is kind of like it is is because for so long it was a family. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we, we hired coaches from within the family. Full Filmer was from within the family. The athletic directors came from the Tennessee program. Uh, you know, when, when we hired Lane Kiffin, we kind of got away from that. And, and, and certainly Jeremy Pruitt is not from the Tennessee family. In fact, he's from the Alabama family, which is our arch rival. But because you have Philip Fulmer, their athletic director, and he made that decision, fans are much more willing to embrace Jeremy Pruitt. And because he's much more relatable to the fan base. He's much more blue-collar. He's much more focused on just the football stuff. Let's get the football stuff. Let's develop the talent we had, as opposed to the, the cliché machine uh, that was Butch Jones before him. So he's highly relatable to the fan base. He's a breath of fresh air. But in the end, He's going to have to win. Uh, Vegas has six and a half for Tennessee's win total this year. I think it's going to be below that. I think we're looking at six. But I think when you look at this, uh, 2019 and 2020, uh, you know, if he's not putting up nine or ten wins, the, 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 what, how, how well he relates to the fan base is not really going to matter. Uh, he's going to have to start winning quickly as in year two and year three. Can he do it? Certainly he can do it. The potential is there. But you got to remember, he's coaching against uh, Kirby Smart at Georgia, who just all, he just came within uh, two plays of winning the national championship last year. I think you know we'll probably talk about uh, uh, Mullen at Florida, the the the, the dual threat quarterback whisper. You know he, he's going to get Florida <laughs> back to probably or he's going to get Florida where they belong. Will Muschamp is having success at South Carolina. Derek or uh, yeah Derek Mason is having success at Vanderbilt. Uh, so you know it's going to be hard to get back back up to the top of the SEC East. Yeah, and you see that, and that, that's what I'm excited about the Jeremy Pruitt hire and the Dan Mullen hire at Florida is because I feel like we are getting closer to being back maybe to the way it once was, where it's Georgia, Florida, and Tennessee all battling for that top spot in the East. Yeah, you, you know, college football is better uh, when, when Florida and Tennessee are where they need to be. Uh, the SEC is better when Florida, Tennessee, and Georgia are where they need to be. And to be quite honest with you, like I said, South Carolina is a good program right now. Mark Stoops is doing pretty good at Kentucky. And, you know, Vanderbilt's no laughing stock any, uh, anymore. So and then you have Missouri. Missouri's got the, the best quarter, best returning quarterback in the conference, uh, the best returning tight end in the conference. Uh, and so they have they have a lot of tools over there. Now, they did just hire Derek Dewey as their offensive coordinator, so we'll see how that works out. But, you know, these programs are good. Uh, and college football is better when the SEC East is where it needs to be, not an afterthought to the SEC West, which is what it has been uh, for six, seven, eight years now. Yeah, over there in the West, you know, talk about new coaches. you, you got two new coaches over there that I think are exciting fan base. Of course, you got Jimbo Fisher signing a massive contract to go to Texas A&M. He had success at Florida State, winning a national title. And then you also got Joe Moorhead at Mississippi State. Did a great job with the offense at Penn State. A lot of excitement there, what he could do with Nick Fitzgerald. I guess, you know, A&M's always going to have talent. And Mississippi State's looked at as that maybe third best team in the West. 
can, in your eyes, one of these coaches in their first year jump up and challenge Alabama or challenge Auburn for the SEC West? Well, the, the short answer is no. Uh, for a long-term prognosis, Texas A&M certainly has the better chance. First of all, Jimbo Fisher is a proven head coach. He's won a national championship at Florida State. He's managed a big-time program. It was just time for him to go. There were some personal issues there. There were some differences of opinion. So it was time for him to go. Texas A&M is a huge school. It's a huge athletic department. Uh, a new athletic director. He's got as, he's got as much or more resources at Texas A&M as he had in Florida. You know, uh, the Florida recruiting base and the Texas recruiting base are very similar. Uh, and he's a proven coach. So in the long run, certainly Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M have uh, uh, the better shot of catching uh, Alabama, LSU, and Auburn at the top of the SEC West. As far as Mississippi State goes. And this is no offense to Mississippi State fans, but that's a program that has a ceiling. Texas A&M is a program that doesn't have a ceiling. It's a huge school, 60,000 people. It's in Texas, uh, one of the great recruiting bases in our nation. Uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a historic program that's got a 100,000-person stadium, so on and so forth. You know, Mississippi State is not. It's a program that has a ceiling. Joe Moorhead is a, is a fine offensive coordinator, but he has not proven himself as a head coach. That's not to say he won't be a successful head coach, but he hasn't proven himself as a head coach. And then if you look at what he's done at Penn State, he's always kind of had a pro-style quarterback that has some mobility, but not a true dual-threat quarterback. If you look at Nick Fitzgerald, his passing numbers actually regressed last year. Now, certainly as a runner, he is a fantastic running quarterback, easily uh, the best returning running quarterback in the league, and that includes both of the Alabama quarterbacks. But if you look at his uh, completion percentage last year, his, his passing numbers and his passing touchdowns, they all regressed in 2016 he's coming off that gruesome injury well we'll see if that affects him i'm not sold on the joe moorhead hire as much uh well i'm certainly not sold on the joe moorhead hire at mississippi state it's going to be interesting to see how that goes i think it's going to be a roll of the dice uh but but the jimbo fisher hire at texas a&m certainly makes more sense proven coach uh, a program without a cap so in the long run to catch alabama auburn and lsu clearly i think texas a&m with jimbo fisher has a much better chance you know, and you bring up LSU, and you know, with Ed Orgeron, it's I think this is a very big year for him. And you know, the hot seat I think is obviously on him. You got quarterback Joe Burrow coming in from Ohio State. I mean, quarterback they got a hit on that position, I believe, be successful. I mean, how much pressure do you think he is on right now to get this LSU team? I mean, I guess no one is saying win an SEC, win a national title, but what does he have to do to be off that hot seat? Well, I mean, he's got to win. And it's not only Ed Orgeron that's on the hot seat, but Joe Oliva, the athletic director. Over the last, uh, since Nick Saban has left, no program, or since uh, since Les Miles won the championship with Nick Saban's players, no program, uh, probably the entire department, no athletic department has done less with more than LSU. Hey, I'm telling you right now, you talk about programs that don't have a ceiling, LSU fans and administration will support their football team to no end. Uh, absolutely, uh, you know you've got to <laughs> you've got to appreciate that from an outsider's perspective. Great fan base, great stadium. Uh, they just expanded it. If you've ever been to a, a game on a Saturday night to Death Valley, it, you know it's one of the great college football experiences. So you, you get a guy with less like Les Miles, who's a good, solid football coach. But when you have a, a whole roster of NFL talent and you can't win multiple national championships. You know, that, that just infuriates the fan base down there and infuriates the administration because they're sinking so much into it. Ed Orgeron comes in, 
Joel Leva comes in, the baseball program has been suffering a little bit, and the basketball program hasn't been able to do anything, even with a even with a, even with a NBA number one draft pick. Uh, I think Will Wade. I think they have the right basketball coach down there now, but they've got to turn that around. Uh, so you look across the athletic department; everybody's under pressure uh, down in the bayou. And of course, uh, Joe Oliva, and of course, and the most important thing for an athletic director is the football program, the football coach. Certainly, I think Ed Orgeron has a ton of pressure on him. But you know, he's also got he's also putting a ton of pressure on himself because this is his dream job. And oh, by the way, it didn't work out at LSU. You know, it didn't work out as an assistant coach at Tennessee. Didn't work out at USC. So if Ed Orgeron doesn't work out at his dream job, his hometown team of LSU, you know, this is the end of the line for Ed Orgeron. So you have the you have the standard pressure of winning in a, in a program full of money, but you also have the added pressure of one: this is his dream job, and two: this is the end of the line for Ed Orgeron. If you know if it, if it doesn't work out here at LSU, he's not getting another head coaching job. He's probably, I mean, I think by far the most pressured any coach in the league, uh, all, all because of those factors. It, it's going to be uh, you know the pressure is going to be on this year, and if they can't find a quarterback to move the ball. It's going to be another long and frustrating year down in the bayou. You know, and lastly, you look around SEC. I mean, there's no question who the best coach in the conference is. That's Nick Saban, Alabama. You know, without question. Well, you look at number two, and I mean, maybe I throw something out there at you. For a couple years ago, I said I would give that to Dan Mullen, but now Kirby Smart's coming up, and you know, I wouldn't put Gus Miles on it too, but he does have his moments where he he does beat Nick Saban. He gets Auburn in contention for a national championship or a playoff berth. But for you, who is that number two coach in the conference right now? Well, I, I tell you, you know, it, I think if you just look at right now, a snapshot in time, I think it's Kirby Smart. Uh, you know, he, he was able to take a team that was a perennial 9-10 team, 9-win, 10-win team, uh, and they were kind of comfortable, and he moved them forward to the national championship game. That's hard to do. And if you look at that team, he's got a great quarterback coming back, you got a stable running back. Let's see what happens on defense, but that's his forte. Uh, so if you look at a snapshot in time, I think right now it's Kirby Smart. Uh, if, if I were drafting a coach and out of that league and I couldn't pick Nick Saban, Kirby's probably the guy I'd go with. Now, having said that, he's only had one season as a head coach. So if you look at the full resume, you know that, that, that works against him. Uh, you know, I think Dan Mullen's a great coach. Like I said, I think what he did at Mississippi State was I think he got that program to almost as, as, as to their full potential. You know, I don't know that Mississippi State just – I simply don't think they have the resources to be a sustained title contender every year. Uh, so I think if you're looking at the overall resume, you know, I think Dan Mullen is probably the second-best coach at the conference. Uh, but then, you know, here's the thing with Gus Malzahn. Gus Malzahn is just frustrating. He's very inconsistent. He's, he'll have a great team one year. Uh, you know, he'll have a, and then they'll, they'll, they'll suffer the next year. I think he's a guy that it really has to have the right players. It's a system that really has to have the right players. Uh, so, you know, if you're looking for, uh, if you're looking for a coach to coach one game, maybe Gus Malzahn is your guy. If you're looking for a guy to manage a program and get that program as much out of that program as possible, I think Dan Mullen's probably your guy. But if you're looking for a guy that's number two right now at this moment, it's probably Kirby Smart. So I, I think it really depends on how you look at it. But I think those three guys are certainly the three guys that you're looking at that uh, that uh, uh, contend for second place. But, oh, by the way, as I talked about earlier, of those guys, there's there's only one other coach in the league that has a national championship to his name. And that's Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M. So, so you can't put that – so you can't, you can't exclude him. Uh, so when you look at the overall resume – 
uh, you, you probably you probably have to include Jimbo Fisher as well. So it's really between those four guys. And again, if you got if you got to win one game, it might be Phyllis Malzahn. If you're looking at a snapshot of time today, it's probably Kirby Smart. If you're looking for a guy who can get your program as as much out of your program as possible, it's probably Dan Mullen. And if you're looking at overall resume, it's probably Jimbo Fisher. So it's it's one of those four guys. It just depends on how you look at it. It depends on who you're going to have at number two. Yeah, and it definitely shows the depth of the, the head coaches in the SEC once again. It, it seems like year in, year out. It does the depth of great coaches is always uh, plenty in the Southeastern Conference. And, uh, Mike, I appreciate you taking the time out, talking SEC coaches, talking about the legacy of John Ward. Uh, it was a lot of fun talking with you about all this stuff SEC-related. And uh, if the listeners wanted to follow you online, where can they find you? Yeah, hey, Phil, thanks for having me on Football Report. It's always a pleasure to come on. If you want to find me online, check me out at Mike L underscore LWS. Last word on sports, that's my Twitter handle. Again, at Mike L underscore LWOS. Uh, and check us out online, last word on collegefootball.com. A lot of content there. Uh, you know, World Cup's going on. Last week I had an article that looked at what college football would look like if we used a relegation system. Uh, got a, a, a book review of a great new book detailing Tennessee's decade of dysfunction and the Shiano coaching hire fiasco. Uh, you know, if you're not a Tennessee fan, you should check that book out. It kind of gives you behind the scenes. It's, it's excellent work. And then we have a lot of other SEC content there at lastwordoncollegefootball.com. Please check us out if you have time. All right, sounds good. And, uh, Mike, I look forward to talking to you again about some SEC football sometime down the road. Always a pleasure, Phil.